Hello and welcome to our series of podcasts on mental health interventions for refugee children. My name is Esther Schroeder and I'm a doctor doing research in refugee health at the University of Oxford. Across this series, we cover assessments, treatments and home and school interventions by talking to experts in these fields. This episode focuses on approaches to doing a thorough and appropriate psychological assessment with a refugee child. I have been able to talk to four experts on this podcast. Associate Professor Mina Fazell is a child psychiatrist and researcher here at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford. Dr Ruth Reid is also a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist in Oxford. Dr Aoife O'Higgins is a researcher on children in care at the University of Oxford, with previous work as a practitioner working with refugee children and families. And Dr. Katie Robjent is a consultant clinical psychologist specialising in working with vulnerable migrants in the Democratic Republic of Congo for Vivo International and the University of Constance. We'll start with Mina talking about centering an assessment, thinking about what the needs of the child and family might be at that moment. And Ruth talking about the impact of trauma on children and what other experiences a refugee child might have had before you first meet them. Refugee communities arrive in new countries with a whole host of potential needs. They need stability. You know, children will need to have their education considered, their housing considered, the broader community needs of any individual considered. And in the midst of all of that complexity, often compounded by legal problems and immigration status, there also needs to be some ability to consider the mental health needs of these populations. So given how many things are going on, it can get lost thinking about the mental health needs. And there are a whole range of reasons for this. Number one, it might just be that people don't realize what they're experiencing might be a mental health problem, so that might be lack of knowledge. It might be a lot of stigma in host communities as well as from native communities where mental illness can be highly stigmatized. Everyone is fearful of it, doesn't understand it, might not know there are treatments available for it. And then finally, there just might be a lack of resources in the host community to treat mental illness. So for all these reasons, it might be easier just never to explore it or go there than to actually start to think about it. I think it's really important to recognise how many different areas it impacts on. So I tend to think about child development very holistically and it can go off track in all sorts of areas after traumatic events. I'm quite interested in the idea of the gap that develops between where a child could be at if they continued on their previous developmental track and where they are at as a result of the experiences that they've been through and trying to assess what that gap is and how you might close down that gap for them. So I might think about um, educationally, what they might have missed as a result of experiences, not only through interrupted schooling, but also through not being able to focus in the classroom or being unable to come into school because of their mental health. Most of the young people that I've seen who've really struggled with their mental health after migration have not only had experiences of persecution or conflict in their homeland but have also had lots of experiences of chronic adversity growing up and 
very, very commonly experiences of direct abuse or domestic violence which they've witnessed or possibly been directly physically harmed during that as well. So often the children have never had a period of development in which things have been going well for them, where there hasn't been some sort of adversity, whether that's financial adversity or family adversity and then on top of that you then have the layer of whatever triggered needing to leave the country and the process of the journey as well and often that has given rise to lots of other cumulative um, traumatic events during that and their experiences here often very frightening as well by the time they arrive here and lots of moves and very fearful of the asylum process and often not having a very full understanding of what that looks like and why. So yeah, there's so many different layers of stacked up adversity um, for these young people and often you might not know about all of them. You might have accidentally only explored the most recent ones and not have realised what else the child's been through or they might not feel able to tell you for whatever reason. So for a refugee child you might be working with, there are potentially a lot of things going on for them in their current situation. On top of previous experiences, there might be risk factors for mental health problems. If you're working with a refugee child and you haven't got a mental health background, you might feel nervous about how to best support the child without making things more difficult for them. Mina and Katie talk more about this and how a child who is suffering from the effects of trauma might come across. So when thinking about the mental health needs of refugee children, I think it's everybody's responsibility because you never know who's in the right place to be trusted by that young person or their family to be told about maybe frightening flashbacks or terrible nightmares or what people are having fears about. So I do think that everyone working with refugees needs to have some sort of psychological awareness of the problems going on. So when we're talking about like the experience of really, really traumatic, potentially traumatic events, then the evidence is quite clear that you need to see someone who's skilled in these trauma-based therapies. But that doesn't mean that everyone else is, is absolved from doing anything about it. It means that you know if you're a teacher and you're worried about that young person, you need to find a way to facilitate them accessing care. And if that means you need to hear a little bit about it, you need to learn what the services are, you need to accompany that young person to services, I think that is a really important and crucial role that people can play. Well, the first thing that I'd like to emphasise is that it's important not to generalise or make assumptions about refugee children, because of course no two children are the same, whether they're refugees, asylum seekers or other kinds of vulnerable migrants or children born here. All too often we can fall into the trap of making assumptions about either resilience or assumptions about vulnerability, and neither of these if they're sort of taken as the extreme, are are helpful narratives. Because, of course, in reality, most refugee children, like most people, fall somewhere in the middle. It is important, though, to realise that refugees have, by definition, experienced traumatic events, both potentially in the country of origin and also during the migration journey. And then on top of that, they encounter significant stresses upon arrival in the host country. 
for example, while trying to acquire legal status, often including very lengthy and aversive processes, poor accommodation, poverty and low resources, on top of having to adapt to a new culture, grieving the losses of people, places and practices that they've left behind, and at the same time having to learn a new language, start a new school, learning new customs uh, and developing new social, social groups. In terms of their presentations, children who are troubled by traumatic experiences may present in many different ways. And I'd like to start really with, with explaining that many children don't necessarily demonstrate their troubles with trauma and trauma symptoms in a very obvious way. So often children can appear withdrawn, aggressive or disruptive, irritable, lacking in, in, in sleep and maybe falling asleep even in the classroom, or frequently absent from school or showing concentration problems and these can actually all be understood in terms of the normal response to trauma or potentially a reaction which is more close to post-traumatic stress disorder but unfortunately it may not be labelled in this way it may end up resulting in a a blaming of children or a labelling as being disruptive or difficult and this can sometimes leave children on the receiving end of exclusionary disciplinary practices which actually further isolates these children for example taking them away from their peers even suspensions from school and as as i've said already many of these behaviors are actually more indicative of ptsd symptoms or other psychological responses to trauma complex presentations for example dissociation which can happen in post-traumatic stress disorder may be diminished if it's not properly understood it can look almost like daydreaming And I know of cases where children have been accused of not paying attention deliberately when in fact they were dissociating during the class. Otherwise, there are other cases, of course, where children may be clearly distressed, showing signs of fearfulness, anxiety, being tearful or depicting the trauma that they've experienced in their games or or drawings. Another aspect to think about, especially if you're meeting this child in a school setting, is how mental health difficulties and learning difficulties might interact. Mina and Aoife tell us more about this, given that there are not many assessment tools available for refugee children, and give an example of how this can become a challenge for the child, their family, and the school and services they're working with. So I think when a young person newly arrives in a school, you have to be really careful that they're not automatically identified as someone experiencing learning difficulties. They might have had disrupted education, then there's the whole linguistic difficulties alongside maybe experiencing um, some mental health problems, all of which might present as learning difficulties, but actually might be just what we would classify as normal adjustment. And so it is really important with these young people to take your time do a thorough assessment. But in the same way that you don't want to jump to conclusions about having learning difficulties, it's also equally easy to overlook learning difficulties because of all of those reasons as well. I do a little bit of work for a project called the Oxford Refugee Health Initiative, where we match medical students with newly arrived refugee families and resettled families in Oxford. And our medical students um, do medical advocacy for the families. One of the families we work with has a 12-year-old boy who speaks very little and there's a suspicion that he may be on the autistic spectrum disorder. There are also concerns that he 
is displaying signs of post-traumatic stress disorder and trying to understand what is a symptom of a learning difficulty and what is a symptom of trauma is extremely complex. In practice, the school is saying we can't send him for a um, cognitive assessment until we understand what his mental health difficulties are. And mental health professionals are saying there's a learning difficulty there which going to, is going to pose a barrier to doing a mental health assessment. And we have health services involved and the paediatricians involved and they're saying, well, it's the school that needs to take the lead for this. And because there are so few, I'm not even talking about validated tools, but sort of tools in available or tools that might be in use, we just don't know how to do those assessments. And practitioners tend to be reluctant to carry those assessments out themselves and certainly take the lead for those assessments. So I think that's really the biggest barrier. As well as assessments being difficult for diagnostic reasons, it might also be a new experience of working with an interpreter. If an interpreter is professional and appropriate, they can be a great benefit, as Kerry describes from her therapy sessions. I'm constantly asking them questions, you know, like, you know, do you have a metaphor for that in your country? Or how would you explain that in your culture? So, and that's why I like working with, with interpreters. It feels as if there's three of us therapist, patient and interpreter all working together to try and help. And it kind of just breaks up the intensity of your relationship as a therapist with the patient, I think, a bit. It feels much more collaborative. And also, it gives you more time to think. Because you've said something in English, they're translating it, say, into Arabic. It gives you a bit of time to think about what you want, <laughs> what you want to ask next. And it also breaks up, you know, you, as a therapist, you spend a lot of time trying to think about how to phrase your question, how to put something in the best way possible. There's no point through an interpreter because you, you, they're not going to translate the nuances of what you've said. So it's sort of working with an interpreter frees you up just to talk normally to patients and just be normal and natural, I think. So I really like it. And I forget they're there after, if I'm you know, in a room with an interpreter and a patient, after about 10 minutes, I kind of forget this, I'm talking through another person. It just becomes how we communicate. A bit like when you're reading subtitles on a film. After a while, you stop noticing you're reading them. You just you just are. It's a, it's a bit like that. So I think it works really well. And they've done secondary analysis of various studies using interpreters and compared it to therapy done without an interpreter, maybe by a bicultural therapist who's speaking the, the language of the patient. And it makes no difference whether you have an interpreter or not. It's just as effective as if it's done in the person's own language without this extra person there. Um, and certainly that's our experience. Almost all of our therapy is done with an interpreter. So it, it, it does work just as well. So this brings us to the end of our episode on assessments. Our future episodes will cover PTSD in detail, as well as mental health therapies and interventions for refugee children.